Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Scott Wabner in tonight for Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Steve Grasso, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. We're also joined today by Steve Chevaroni, the portfolio manager at Federated Investors. Tonight on Fast, shares of Tesla hitting the skids despite the company marking a major milestone in China. We'll have full details ahead. Plus, Wells Fargo's Mike Mayo says we're entering a, quote, golden decade for banks why he says the sector is in for its own roaring 20s. And check out this mystery chart. On pace for its best year since 2010, we'll tell you what it is and what to expect in the new decade. But first... Let <laughs> <laughs> it go, the whole show. I mean, it's a l- lousy song. Yeah? Oh, it's a miserable song. It's right up there with the Eye of the Tiger. Which is one of the great five movie, worst though. songs of all great time. Great movie. movie. All-time classic. Yeah. The movie it was oh, in. That, that. That's I Jordan's got. Bulls were introduced to this song every night, weren't they? Maybe not. That's not, that's those not good memories for me. Okay. Well, it is the final countdown, nonetheless, Guy. It whether is. you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> There's just one trading day left before we ring in the new year and a new decade. And it's looking to be an ugly end of the year, with stocks posting their biggest losses in four weeks. So, should you hold off on popping the bubbly, or was today just a minor blip? Well, I mean, I think it's a minor blip, because I've thought the market's going to go down probably since September or so. And I thought, and I've said it on the show in the early December, that December is going to be, at best, a choppy month. But at worst, probably a very volatile month. Didn't pan out that way. So, look, I do think things have gotten ahead of themselves. I thought that for a while. But there are certain things that have worked for the last six months that I think will work again into early 2020. Healthcare has done unbelievably well. I think uh, big cap pharma continues to outperform in my book. Hospitals as well, we've talked about that. We're going to talk about gold later on the show. I do think that's a huge story. I think the dollar weakens in the first half of the year, and I think energy stocks are going to continue to grind higher from here, Scott. You're entitled to a, uh, a down day, given the run we've been on. No doubt about it. I mean, listen, I think there's been so little volatility in the last few months, and I think it's important to remember what's been going on in the last few months. The Fed has effectively gone into some form of quantitative easing. This happened after we had three consecutive um, 25 basis put uh, Fed funds cut you know, since July 31st. So when you look at the lack of volatility, you look at the way the market has moved over the last few months, it makes sense. It's reminiscent of those days of QE in a way. And then you put the calendar in there and the removal of at least the near-term trade fears, and you have yourself a market that is just inching to record highs into the end of the year um, at all-time highs for the year. And I guess the issue is, where does it go really early in the new year? Are we extended? Is um, sentiment kind of overly complacent? No doubt about it. And you probably have that trend line, which is back to 31.25 or something. I'm sure Steve's had some. This, this, is a, this was an overshoot level, 32 to 32.50. This is where I had thought in a perfect world it gets to. We're there. I think you got to sell the market now. Really? Yeah. Q1, I mean, what's, what are we hoping for now? You're going to get guys that miss the market rally. They're going to take another shot in Q1, try to short it again. Why risk it? Why be too just, cute? It just feels like a lot of the major stuff is so out of the way 
until earnings. But don't they always say, you know, you, 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 barring we've already, we've already been waiting. We've climbed that wall of worry. We've had trade. We've had the Fed. We've, we've had the worries about economic slowdown. What else is there? I don't know, but why would we be done just to be done? Well, you could be done because the calendar switches over and you have a lot of uh, portfolio managers who are putting on new bets. They're not going to do it now. Waiting for the turn of the calendar. They chase the market. If you think about how everyone needed to get a lot longer than they were in the last two months of the year, there were a lot of funds who had to do that. Now they're going to maybe take a shot on the short side. How do you see it? Look, of course there's going to be a pullback in the first part of next year. The market's not going to go up forever in a, in a completely straight line. But, but we'd be buyers of any weakness. You know, our view is that if you can't put up the recession... Shut up about the bear market. Bull markets end in recessions. That was our call a year ago when we were calling for 3,100. It's our call now. We're calling for 35 next year. We think there could be upside to that target. If it drops, I think that's an opportunity to get in. What happens if you get to 35 in somewhat short order? That's kind of the Ed Yardeni nervousness, right? So that's about 10 10 to 20 percent back if you... Have a melt Let's up go to back 35. to January 2018. The stock market was up 8%. This was the, you know, in the month or two after the tax cut was put in place. And I think you couldn't find anybody to sell a stock. And then what happened is the realization that earnings might not be what the, where the market was trading at that point. I think we have a very similar situation here. We have a stock market that's up nearly 30%. We have earnings estimates for 2019 that have come down materially since the start of the year. So we have no earnings growth, but we have a stock market that's up 30%. Right, so but the like question you, I think you said I think I think you said earlier when you when you have the Fed creating this liquidity and there were a lot of people who didn't believe in the market rally. And that's why I think we overshot a lot of different targets for the S&P. I do think you get that shot to your point. I think you're making to uh, earnings estimates where I don't think people have brought them in enough going forward. You think people are still too optimistic? I think people are too optimistic going forward. And a lot of this was created. And I I do agree with Steve. I think that this dip that is coming, that eventually will come, is a viable event. But I think that you're too cute to think we go straight to 35. If I told you we'd get 5% earnings growth next year, is that good enough to keep the market climbing? I think people will be thrilled with 5% earnings growth. I don't think it's happening. I mean, to Dan's point, you have negative to flat earnings growth at best, and I just don't see where it's coming from. So if you were to say next year you get 5% earnings growth, I think people would cheer that with both hands. I just don't see it happening. And, and quickly, in terms of recession, I understand, but my pushback would be I think a market sell-off causes a recession more than a recession causes a market sell-off. That's a longer conversation, but I think it's an important one because I think people view the market as the ultimate arbiter yeah, but you need, you of would the need overall one, economy. You would need one heck of a sell-off With to a cause a Quickly, quickly oh. go back to last October, November, when the market went down basically 19.5% over the course of a month yeah. and a half. That- Consumer spending stopped on a dime. Consumer spending is... The economy. But when the reason the market stopped went spending, down, though, at that point in time was on fears of a recession, that the Fed was going to put us into a recession. Well, I mean, so that's, that's why I would beg and the to Fed, And the Fed was tightening, too. So they, they were shrinking the balance sheet. The they were, was gonna so there was a whole bunch of... So we have, the, we have the opposite of everything that's going on. And the economy is in a, in a much better position as far as the unknowns with, with unemployment rate the way it is with trade the where it is and the Fed where they are on their stance. That's what's so important. You can't talk about just the 30% increase in the market without talking about the 20% decline that happened in a month and a half beforehand. If you look at where we are versus last September, we're up 10%. We think we can do another 10% 
over the next year, 2%, 3% earnings growth, a little bit of multiple expansion. It's not I, heroic. I, I know, but look what it took to get there just this year, Steve. That's my yeah. issue. You have Fed funds at well, one. took was the Fed. One and a half. Yeah. You, have, you have a 10-year Treasury yield below 20, uh, 2%. You have the Fed expanded yeah, their balance sheet by Jerome $400 Powell billion dollars over the last four months. If Jerome Powell does anything... He's going to lose credibility. He is on the sidelines. Rates are going to stay low. But he's, but he's still adding. So, so he's still adding. So yeah, he's still adding liquidity yeah. with expanding the balance sheet because yeah. when they were when they were when the letting uh, stuff roll off on the balance sheet, it was equivalent to tightening. Yeah. Now they're expanding. It's equivalent to loosening. Even if he does nothing. He's right. already easing Just look at the monetary, yield curve. monetary It's at a policy. 14-month, it's as steep as it's been in almost a year and a half. And look, I think for the earnings growth and the GDP growth, I think it's bottomed. And I think you're going to see the PMIs yeah. turn. But Steve, and I think the cyclicals really that are that the, bringing the, the, that up. The Fed fixed the yield curve. That's why they, re, uh, that's why mm-hmm. they lowered rates 75 basis points. To me, that you have the 210 spread at, to, at 25 bits. That doesn't really mean a whole heck of a lot. The Fed actually cut rates for the first time in 10 years, 10 years into this cycle. So to me, I guess what I'm thinking about the stock market into 2020 is that a lot of this year was just multiple expansion. You're looking at the S&P trading nearly 20 times earnings after no earnings growth. That's discounting a whole heck of a lot of good news in 2020. So to your point, Scott, you started the conversation. What's next? It's just earnings. That's what the market trades on. If we are not going to get material earnings growth and we're not going to get signs of that as we get guidance for 2020, I would expect that's how a sell-off comes. And you probably get back to 3,000. That was the breakout level of late October. Depending how low rates remain, because relative to where interest rates are, the market at you know, 18, 19 times, whatever it is, isn't necessarily expensive. Well, and look, if you go back over three years, 85% of the run is on earnings. So, yeah, multiple expansion was the story in 2019 off of that 20% decline. You go back three years, it's 85% earnings growth. You go back over five, it's 50-50 yeah, earnings, earnings are multiple. 0%, zero interest rates for 10 years, right? The record buybacks. I mean, so it's not really organic earnings growth, right? I mean, is it or no? We're up 500% and it organically is sitting in our account. So we'll take it. Let's talk some more about the risks to your money heading into the new year. Bob Pisani is live at the New York Stock Exchange for us tonight. Hey, Bob. Hello. Happy New Year, Scotty, and everybody there. With the markets up almost 30% this year, you know, it's put up or shut up time, really. We're ending the year near historic highs because traders have come to believe there is greater clarity on the what I call the four horsemen that have moved the markets all throughout this year. First is a trade truce that's now likely. Second, the Fed is neutral and unlikely to raise rates in 2020. The U.S. consumer remains strong, low chance of a U.S. recession in 2020. And finally, the global economy is showing signs of bottoming, or is it? Now, December has seen a slow melt-up on light volume, but when the adults return in January, there's going to be a little bit of a reckoning. The market has largely priced in expectations of a real trade truce and a bottoming in the global economy. But it's not clear what kind of truce we're getting, nor is it clear that the global economy is exactly bottoming. So, for example... November Japanese data on retail sales and industrial production released last Friday was already poor. So was the South Korea data over the weekend. This week we will see critical data that may or may not confirm this global bottoming theory. So we're going to get China PMI and the services PMI tonight, Eurozone PMI on Thursday, U.S. ISM manufacturing on Friday as well. Policymakers may look past weakness in Q4, but it's not clear that the investors are going to do that. So even without this weaker economic data, the market is already notably overbought and due for a pause. That's what we saw today. The 14-day relative strength index for the S&P 500, 
It's a momentum indicator that's widely watched by Wall Street technicians is at 78. That's the highest level since January 2018. Any reading over 70 is overbought. Readings near 80 are very overbought. Hard to move the market forward. That's what it's telling you right now. A pause like today, therefore, is welcome. The market does a little bit better with two steps up and one step back. It'd be nice to get a little digestion before another leg up happens. And I think, Scotty, that's exactly what happened today. Yeah. Back to you. Bob, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. Bob Pisani, okay. New York Stock Exchange Force. In the Santa Claus rally does typically last into the first you know, handful of days into the new year. That's one thing. And, and the other thing is when you have a strong year the way we have had in 2019 for the S&P, when you're up this much, better than 20 percent, you are up 75 percent of the time going Follow. into the next year. Yeah. And not only are you up, you're up double digits. On average, like 11%. So history is on the side of the bulls. Right. And the S&P, I hear what Bob's saying on the RSI relative strength index, but it has a knack of working it off pretty quickly. So I think any, any sell-off that you see will be short in duration and a buyable event. Last comment? Oh, no, I thought you, you were something? about to read. Well, no, I, I, I feel like we should hear from you. Do you? Hot shot. A lot, hot shot. I'm just saying it's 45 minutes left in the show. My yeah. quick pushback would be: if Don't you, confuse if, the U.S. consumer. If you don't answer the question, spending we can only have forty-three minutes left. Strength. There's, I don't believe in consumer strength. They shouldn't be spending. I mean, think about Why? it. Fifty. What do you mean? Consumer Wages debt to GDP is fifty-four percent. It's at ridiculous though. levels. You talk about people living paycheck to paycheck. Most well, of wages country, are increasing for the first time in years, and you know they're what? outpacing inflation. The U.S. consumers want to spend is always there. Their ability to spend, I don't think, is there. So, if the market were ever to go lower, you see how fast they'll stop spending. Go back to October, November, if you want proof positive of of two year, last year. Well, of course, but that doesn't when mean the market that the consumer's goes not down, in decent shape. People look at the. Pardon me? That doesn't mean that the consumer's not in decent shape. They're now, not in decent if shape. If I tell you the market's going to go down 40% or consumer's going to cut back? Unemployment, I, mean, I can store not, The consumer, I'm just telling you right now, consumer debt to GDP is at levels that are unsustainable. I don't care where rates are. Yeah, but They're completely over levered. That, that debt is now financed over 30 years no, at a historically I, low rate that's right. fixed. So let's please keep playing that game and helpful. see how it works out. Aren't you glad I asked you for another yeah, comment? Well, that's why you got yourself into it. <laughs> Whether America is or not, I'm not sure. But, uh, are you? All right, coming up, ride share wreckage. What's causing shares of Uber and Lyft to drop so sharply today? And later, total domination. You won't believe how much of the box office belonged to Disney this year. We'll bring you that staggering stat plus breakdown what's ahead for the media giant heading into the new year. We're live from Times Square in New York City, and there is much more fast money right after this. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Fast money, the ride-sharing stocks hitting the skids today. Deirdre Bosa is here to break down exactly why. Nice to see you. Hi, guys. Nice to see you. Be here in person. Now, no respite whatsoever for the ride-sharing companies as we head into a brand-new year, a brand-new decade. Uber down nearly 1.5% today. Lyft falling 5% in the second-to-last trading day of the year. Now, for them, this is the 11th hour. On January 1st, California's new 
legislation, AB5, this is a so-called gig economy bill. It goes into effect, and they still have not won a carve-out despite months of lobbying. Now, the law could require Uber and Lyft to reclassify their drivers as employees, not independent contractors in California. That would be a game-changer, as you guys know well, likely upending their entire business model. Now, both companies say that they will not be changing the status of their drivers come January 1st, essentially because their platforms and drivers are not core to their business. As you might imagine, drivers and lawmakers could take issue with that. And what we're likely to see, guys, is a slew of lawsuits challenging that assertion. Now, neither scenario is good for Uber and Lyft's balance sheets. And this, of course, comes at a time when investors are already having a hard time buying into what they've outlined as paths to profitability. Lawsuits and an expensive ballot initiative to counter AB5, that's the lesser evil. But, guys, the more bearish situation, actually having to reclassify their drivers as employees could be disastrous. So investors getting jittery just less than two days ahead of that doom date is not a good sign for the stocks. And it's no wonder that investors are getting jittery. Yeah. The last thing investors need when it comes to these stories is a further lack of clarity on profitability, as Dee says. These, these, these companies don't ever seem to me that they'll ever be profitable. They, they have lack of growth or slowing growth, uh, decreasing margins and high multiples. And the nature of the business is so ultra competitive that with multiple players, I don't see it happening for them. Well, Period. here's the thing. So there's two players here for all intents and purposes. Obviously, Lyft is just focused on North American rideshare. And what they've done since they went public in the spring is they've actually printed three beat and raise quarters consecutively. They've also pointed to when they're going to be profitable. So you're seeing their EBITDA losses decelerate as far as from, from a gross standpoint. You're seeing active riders, active, riser, uh, active revenue per user increase. Those are the sorts of things. If you believe in this rideshare model, then this is one way to play it. This is definitely a headwind because if you're seeing EBITDA losses being reduced, but then you have uh, you know unquantifiable losses in the future, that's the issue. I oh, just no, think this, like, this, as Dee said, I mean, this is the game changer. This you one. have these companies classify their workers as employees yeah. and raise the, the, the cost of everything. If this happens, and remember, California now, but other states are considering similar legislation, it takes away the flexibility. It's really no, it's really difficult to argue that this is still a tech company than it is a car service or a taxi company because they have to start putting their drivers on shifts. So it's very, very different. But is it likely that they will actually reclassify their drivers? Maybe not, but they'll have to spend a lot of money getting to that point. What's ironic too is, you know, you talked, Dan, about Lyft being the North American play. Uber's more international, right? They actually consolidated in the Middle East. They got the nod from Egyptian regulators to go forward with their Kareem acquisition. They're making a series of concessions there to make that market more competitive. So when you talk about moats, you talk about them you know, protecting what they have carved out. It's very hard to see that case right now. Would well, you guys own either of these yeah, stocks? Yeah, Lyft I would. I mean, that's the existential. That's the tail risk there that Deirdre, Deirdre pointed out. She did a great job. But this stock has gone from 37 and a half a couple of months ago, I think October. It just traded 50. So the move down to 43 and a half is a 50% retracement of that entire move. It makes sense. We've seen a 15% correction off that high. Go back three quarters when the stock was 63 bucks. That was an outstanding quarter. Now, what happened was they announced the huge lockup was expiring in August, 290 or so million shares, and Uber came out, and the stock cratered. But you have a lot of analysts that have upgraded this stock, I think Goldman Sachs being one of them, Loop Ventures. I think you buy it here at 43 and a half. If and I think you, you think, though, the that the market's coming in, wouldn't they come for these stocks with maybe. high multiples first? If you think the market's coming in short order, maybe you wait 
for the first quarter. Because if you don't have earnings, if we think it's going to be an earnings uh, resolution in the first quarter, a lot of these names that don't have. I just think it's really interesting that 2019 was the year that public investors were pining away to get access to these growth companies, these disruptive tech companies. They got them. They generally didn't like them in the public <laughs> markets. I think if you can have longer than a one or two year time horizon, a name like Lyft makes a lot of sense. They're massively disrupting multiple industries right now. And this is what the same arguments people used to make about Amazon about 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, but one of the right issues right with like an Uber, for example, you could make the argument that it's, yes, it's a growth company, but it's a very mature growth company. They went public too late. I think they would argue that, that actually, when you look at the total addressable market, you look at enterprise opportunities, they would say that they're probably in the first inning. And, and I'm just saying, if you can take a longer term view, you can see how cities are going to be transformed But you know why this works, this- though, for, for me, the way I look at it is that the, the ride sharing, so I, you said you have to believe in it. I don't believe yeah. in it because when you had protections with taxis. It was a government regulation. That's all out the window. I think it's game on, war on, and there's too many players chasing the same dollar. And what's the incremental margin? It's not as though an additional driver gives you an additional unit of profitability. It's just hard to see how you scale in this space. And then if if, if you're going to have... Well, that's the thing. (laughs) And if you're going to have regulatory change, unless and until you can get to autonomous vehicles, it becomes a difficult scalability and story. You're competing for drivers and riders. Yeah. So you've got this two-prime approach. But Scott, you're exactly right. The best growth days are behind these companies when they were pu- private companies. You have to wonder how much money do they have to go into food delivery, into logistics, other industries to actually become that growth story. All right. Good to see you here on set, Debosa. Thanks for having me. All right. There's a lot more Fast Money coming up right after the break. Here's what else we have on the docket tonight. Top banking analyst Mike Mayo is saying hallelujah for the new decade. We'll find out what he says the 2020s have in store for the financial sector. And a major milestone for Tesla in China. But that's not enough for investors today. We'll tell you what's weighing on the stock in today's call of the day. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bank stocks wrapping up 2019 with a bang. J.P. Morgan touching a new all-time high today, while Citigroup hit the highest level in nearly two years. Both stocks gave up those early gains to finish the day in the red, though. And despite the losses, our next guest says we're about to embark on a, quote, golden decade for the financials. Let's bring in Mike Mayo. He's the senior bank analyst at Wells Fargo Securities. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. There you go. (laughs) I don't mind waiting a second for it. (laughs) Golden decade, why? Well, this is the golden decade of banks and technology. And let's 
pull the lens back here. The 1990s, you had record bank consolidation, and they never integrated the systems. In the O's, you had excessive growth, and that ended in tears with the financial crisis. This decade was the cleanup from the financial crisis with all sorts of de-risking and deleveraging. Now, finally now, 25 years after national banking was first permitted, banks can leverage their scale, their more prudent growth, along with technology that's better enabled for banks than ever before, and banks are more receptive to using technology than ever before. So tech is the enabler. It's going to take banks on this multi-year trend of improving efficiency, better returns with a lower risk profile that's still being underappreciated by the street. Who Underappreciated? I mean, the people have been buying the heck out of these things. Pull the lens back. You've had two lost decades of bank stock performance. Bank stocks underperformed this decade by over 20 percentage points. So, yes, 2019 you know, was a recovery, but, and we think that's just a taste of the decade to come. Who's doing it the best? Who's got the technology thing down the best? You have outperforms, I think, on all of the major well, the you, majors. You know, and I've, you know, I've talked with you a lot and been on your shows here a lot yes, this have. year. And our top three names, you know, stay with the winners, in, you know, ahead. So Citigroup, Bank America, J.P. Morgan. That doesn't mean Citigroup's doing it the best. J.P. Morgan, talk about a best-in-class bank. Uh, J.P. Morgan's killing it. Bank America, talk about fintech. Bank America is one of the best fintech players around. So those two are doing it the best. But Citigroup is still our favorite because it's just so inexpensive, and they're buying back so much stock. And Citigroup, just like the entire banking industry, is still underappreciated for the risk reduction, the sustainability. All these times we go on your shows and people have concerns about recessions and rate risk and regulation and spotty growth. And look what the banks did. Look what those three big banks did this year, especially in the third quarter, grew revenues faster than expenses. And when you do that, great things happen. What about the more traditional uh, investment banks, Goldman Sachs, for instance? Obviously, it's up. It's outperforming the market this year. It's up 37 percent. It's still down 15, 20 percent from its 2018 highs. You know, consensus has 10 percent earnings growth, 5 percent sales growth, trades one times book. Why is this thing stuck in the mud on a relative basis? J.P. Morgan makes new highs. Do you see an opportunity in a bank that, you know, has obviously got a couple headwinds, the one MDB? That needs to start thing. growing again. Yeah. Well, right? look, look at cap. Look at trading for the decade. Yeah. Trading for the big investment banks for the decade declined by one-fourth to one-third, depending on your starting point. Capital markets revenues for the last five years, you know what they've grown? Zero. They have not grown. And in our forecast, we don't assume a whole lot of growth ahead. Having said all that, we do think Goldman Sachs is better positioned now with their new CEO, David Solomon. We think they're going to put their legal issues with 1MDB behind it. Our estimates are above the street for the quarter and for next year, and they're having their first investor day in their 150-year existence at the end of January. So Mike, a lot you, of things happening did, with Goldman Sachs. When you did your Sachs. chronology, what the, where I stick on is we've had the most deregulation and the most tax cuts in the last couple of years. Why would it get better from here? I hear it's the digitized or digital era, but how can it be any better of a backdrop than it's been? Well, look, I think banks are not getting credit for what they've already delivered. Every quarter and every year that banks deliver you know, consistent returns, they regain some of that trust that was lost. So what we're looking at is big and boring is beautiful for banks. 
and that's not appreciated for the sustainability element. How much do, do the leaders of these banks matter for your golden decade forecast? If I was to say, well, what are the, what's the likelihood that Diamond, Moynihan, Gorman, and Corbat are going to be running these institutions for the next 10 years? How would that factor into your outlook? Well, I would put cells on everything. If you said the same people are going to be there 10 years from now, you know, no matter what. I mean, we need to hold... The biggest risk for the banks is complacency. I mean, this has been a period of several years in a row of consistent results. And don't confuse brains with the bull market. All right? So everyone should be worried about the next recession, the next crisis, the next bad loan, the next bad trade. So I don't assume any one of these CEOs will stay around longer than the current year. If they don't perform, they deserve to go just like any employee that works at one of these no, banks. No, my point, though, is if none of those four were running these institutions, would you have outperforms on all of them? Or would that factor into the way you rate the banks as an you analyst? Know, let's look back at the last decade and give a, a big thank you to the regulators. The regulators have hardwired the banks for greater safety and stability. So all that crazy stuff that was done before the financial crisis, I'm not saying it's all gone, but a lot of it's gone. So part of this is this is just a machine that keeps running and running and running when you're the likes of J.P. Morgan and Bank America. That's a tribute to their management. Now, Citigroup, you know, there's a reason they have worst-in-class returns and worst-in-class stock market valuation, even though they did perform so well this year, and that's because they still need to restructure more. So if you're saying that it's business as usual, then we'd say you probably wouldn't have the same CEO in place in five years. Mike, when, you, when, you, when you're looking at these companies, you're talking about tech. What are the technology solutions that you're most focused on for driving you know, this greater profitability? Is it AI? Is it blockchain? What are you focused on here? That, that's a great question. I went to the Wells Fargo Securities Tech Conference. There were 800 attendees and one bank analyst. No. Well, you got invited to your own conference. <laughs> I, no, I actually was I not. mean, if you said you got invited to the Citibank can- no, I, I conference, I'd be invited. I got myself invited. You know, I think he like, crashed. And by the way, if you're having a New Year's Eve party tomorrow night, maybe I can cover that too, okay? So I invited myself to this tech event, and, you know, what hit me was the solutions that are out there now for the banks. I mean, it's like paint-by-number tailored solutions for the banking industry. And I run into all these other you know, attendees, and they're like, yeah, we've seen this done. We've seen this done in the retail industry. We've seen this done in the manufacturing industry. Now just, let's just apply it to the banks. And so we're looking at you know, AI. We're looking at big data. We're looking at cloud computing. We're looking at digital banking. We're looking at electronic payments. We're looking at faster processing with faster computers. And then we're looking at the governance around all of this as Scott mentioned, you know, the CEOs are very important. You need to have the chief technology officers in the C-suites at these banks to drive down these decisions because so many, so many of these technology solutions impact different parts of the banks. So you can't always go in at the low level. You need more authority to the chief technology officers. All right. Good stuff. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for being here. That's Mike Mayo. Got a quick trade on that? He's one of the best in the business, no question. J.P. Morgan has a $150 price target. I get it. It's probably headed there. But tangible book in J.P. Morgan is basically $60. Book value, 75 I mean, it is getting rewarded better, more than the rest of these banks, for certain. Not to say that it can't go higher. One bank we've mentioned now for a while, and I think you've done it on halftime, is Blackstone. Take a look at that stock over the last six months. Clearly, something's going on there in BX. That's the place I would still want to be. You have a conviction buy on Mayo. 
I've, since day one of Mike Mayo's been coming on this show for a decade. Yeah, the guy just wandered into John Barbados the other day and <laughs> brought up the shop or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, up next, the streaming war is ready to kick into high gear in the new year. We'll break down the winners and losers and who might come out on top. Plus, shares of Newmont Mining bucking today's market slide. Why that's pure gold for one trader in the options market. We'll explain when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Disney having a magical year. The stock is up more than 30%, thanks in part to the company's total domination at the box office. Disney accounting for nearly 40% of all U.S. ticket sales this year. But it wasn't just the box office. Disney also entered the streaming wars this year in a big way. It is a crowded space, though. So what can you expect in the new year? Here's Julia Borston. In 2020, we'll see the shifting power dynamic between media giants and tech titans battling for viewers. First, Netflix will lose more subscribers in the U.S. as a slew of new streaming apps gain traction. With NBC Universal's Peacock launching in April and HBO Max launching in May, on top of this year's new additions of Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus, Netflix will face steep competition for subscribers here in the U.S., putting pressure on it to continue investing in content and to focus on international growth. Second, Ad-supported streaming, with Peacock entering the fray, will be the new front in the streaming wars. With the ad-free subscription business Netflix pioneered, now crowded, consumers, advertisers, and content creators will shift focus to streaming ad-supported content for free. Third, the success of streaming video will eat into the box office, which will decline next year. All that streaming content raising the bar for going to the movies. And a declining box office lacking the big-name franchises that broke records this year is likely to put pressure on studios' bottom lines. So that was Julia Borson reporting. Who is the best position to dominate the streaming wars heading into the new year? Forgive me, it's been a... Long day, Grasso. Uh, I, I think that, you know, Disney for me, I, I think Netflix is actually a sell at these levels. It's had an unbelievable run. I was uh, tremendously bullish on Netflix. Love the product. But I think you're going to see their multiple shrink and Disney's multiple expand. But how about the theater stocks? AMC, yeah. Cinemark, demolished. That's a gone era. It's all about, it's all about your living room now. It's all about all the other streaming that you want to look at. But it's really crazy to me that Disney, people are second-guessing this now. That multiple is going to expand even further from here. I just think that those um, theater receipts that, that Julia just told us, they had Disney had 40% of them in 2019. That's really important. That's going to fuel Disney Plus, their streaming service. Mm-hmm. That's going to fuel the competition with Netflix. When you think about all the money that Netflix is spending, they're losing um, on a free cash flow basis to create that content. Disney already has the infrastructure to create that content, and they get paid. They get paid. How many billion-dollar names did they have in the theaters this year? Five or six or something like that. So to me, I agree with Steve on that. I'd be a seller of Netflix and a buyer well, of Disney. Well, and Dan, every one of those movies is going on to Disney Plus. Soon. Right. And I, I mean, I, we went to the movies last week with my kids. We were arguing over which Disney movie we were going to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was 100% of what we saw this year. And if content's king, look, I mean, Netflix has a great install base and they are producing good content. Disney's the greatest content company ever. Uh, I think it gets interesting after that. You've got Amazon, kind of AT&T, you've got NBC now entering that. There's going to be a battle there. And then the wild card here is Apple. 
because it's clear that Apple TV or Apple Plus is not there yet. So who do they go buy? Because you've got to think that they're going to look to do that in the new year. Yeah, no, I mean, it's fair about the Disney multiple. I thought it was expensive for a while now, and at 24 times, maybe it does continue to grow into that multiple. You can make that argument. But Comcast has had this stealth move as well at 13 times, which I understand it shouldn't get a Disney multiple, not even close. But I think that stock is too cheap in this environment. All right, for more on Disney, Netflix, and everything streaming, head over to our website at CNBC. Coming up, slamming the brakes on Tesla, the analyst call that sent shares tumbling today. Break it all down when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of NIO topping the tape after a China-based electric car maker reported a smaller-than-expected loss last quarter. The stock finishing the day up more than 50%. Not the same story, though, for rival Tesla. That stock hitting a rough patch following a cautionary note by Cowan. It's our call of the day. Cowan expects Tesla to fall short on year-end deliveries. And while Cowan did up its price target on the stock to 210 from 190, that still represents a nearly 50% drop from current levels. Cowan says the delivery shortfall comes despite signs of strength in key markets like China, where Tesla today delivered its first Model 3 cars built at its new Shanghai factory. The company says the facility is already assembling more than 1,000 cars a week. It hopes to double that rate over the next year. Despite today's drop, the stock's been on a tear lately. So does Tesla have more room to run or is this record rally done? Guy. Well, I mean, I thought this was going to stall 325 or so. Kudos to Dan Nathan, who, by the way, back over the summer when the stock was cratering, said, you know what, sentiment's probably gotten way too bad. The stock is worthy of a buy. And he was spot on. But I don't think anybody on this test, maybe Steve did, but I didn't think there was any shot that this sucker was going m- much past 350, let alone 420. With that said, you know, 210, it was just there in September. Think about that no, for a second. So, I mean, it's not, re- it's not crazy to think we can't revisit it, but I have to be clear. I've been wrong now for at least $150 in this stock to the upside. And so the it would shorts be have been wrong, yeah. and the shorts have, have chased it. it? So I, I have owned I've been in and out. I did think this thing would pop, and the reason why I thought it would pop was because the RSI, it worked off overbought really quick the last time we saw that. And the stock has basically run 145% from June, 100% recently in the last couple of months. But now it's running into that wall of resistance yet again. I do think it trades lower from here. If you've been lucky enough to ride it, you can't be greedy at this level. Yeah, I just said, Guy, you're too kind. I mean, when the stock was trading down there at 180, it seemed kind of obvious, a little bit overdone there. The news was just horrendous, and you couldn't find somebody to buy the stock. Um, I've been wrong now for a bit on this thing. I think Mike Santoli said something really uh, interesting. I think on the show with you earlier today, he's like, this is the stock that trades off of the eternal tomorrow, whatever that means. I liked it. But, uh, you know, it can't trade at a $68 billion market cap on the delivery guidance that they're going to give us next month and what they end up doing because they routinely disappoint point on that. And I think the shorts have been wrong to focus on those sorts of things because they get burned every time when they get too negative. They say, well, they said they're going to do 400 cars and they're only going to do 370. It doesn't really matter at this point. Um, You know, listen, I think it's also notable that today they have their wholly owned um, factory in Shanghai. They're delivering cars, stock down like this. I think it's in the stock. I think there's a lot of good news in the stock here. So I wouldn't be a buyer. I think you make a great point, that eternal tomorrow, right? I mean, the big story here is that EV vehicles are real. That's a good thing. It's a more environmentally friendly and sustainable kind of transportation future. The question is, is given the run that it's had, as this company tries to enter, you know, automotive adulthood, where they need to be able to deliver, 
how much forgiveness is there going to be? Uh, because there's, there's a lot of things to be positive about, but expectations are high at this price. All right, coming up, a new year, a new rally. Find out if this trade will continue to shine heading into 2020. Mm. But first, here's a look at our Kramer cam. Jim is breaking out his sell-off playbook. What you should do if the markets turn south. Be sure to catch that coming up top of the hour. We're live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. More Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's been a golden year for gold investors. The commodity is having its best year since the start of the decade, up more than 18%. But as you can see, gold is still far from its all-time high of more than $1,800 an ounce. So will gold continue to shine in the new year? What do you think? I don't care. Um, when, when we take other people's money, it's our job to try to figure out how to put the odds in their favor. Over 50 years, gold's underperformed the S&P by 10,000%. I mean, that's a huge number. And, and how do we put odds in, in the investor's favor? By forecasting cash flows and figuring out what those are worth in terms of multiple. Right, of course. There's you no cash flow. Gold. So I, I'm, I'm left trying to wonder what people are going to pay for a gold rock. I'd rather bet on the innovation of companies. Is that is that uh, sorry guys? No. Is that something though? When you look at the Fed, is it a direct correlation? When the Fed eases, gold trades up. It's there's obviously a correlation. You see with crude, there's a correlation with the dollar. But when I look at it, if you're a gold bug, you buy the miners. The miners always outperform two to three times more than the underlying commodity. So if you happen to be a gold bug, you buy the GDX the minor ETF versus the GLD. Because there's a real company around it. And I think what's happening right now is gold is rallying with commodities. I think it's actually a reflationary trade that's based on better economic growth projections next year, not some Armageddon scenario. Yeah, that's one way to look at it. And I'd say, to Steve's point, it's a play against central banks now globally torching their currencies, tripping over themselves to be the cheapest one out there. And I think people are finally figuring out that gold is the asset of choice. So I would push back and say, I don't think it has anything to do with the economies getting better. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that people are losing faith in central banks because they're finally realizing, you know, the, the genie's out of the bottle and the wizard behind that curtain isn't as all-knowing as everybody likes to think they are. You continue to buy gold? Yes, 100%. Newmont Mining, who Mike Coe is about to talk about in Uh-oh. about 30 seconds. I mean, we've talked about that stock now forever. It is absolutely breaking out to the upside. You want to read the intro? No. I mean, it's the night before New Year's <laughs> Eve. No, I can't read it. Live no. a little. <laughs> Come on. Give it a shot. It requires me to, like, read around. Just I can't, read it once. America's, America's been waiting for this. just made a big bullish bet <laughs> on a gold miner. Well, there's a reason Mike why. Mike Coe is in San Francisco with the options action. Mike, what are you seeing? Yeah, so we saw quite a lot, actually. We saw two times the average daily call volume in Newmont Gold Corp today. And the trade that I saw that I was taking a look at was somebody basically making the bet that Guy's talking about, that the stock is breaking out here. They were buying the January 45-and-a-half calls. 715 of those traded for about $0.21. Cents. And the buyer of those calls is obviously betting that the stock is going to finish above that strike price by January expiration, which is two weeks from this coming Friday. And that would represent a 5% increase from where the stock finished the day today. Okay. <laughs> Let's trade it. A GDX, that would be my trade. Up 37% year to date. I think you're going to get another shot at it. If the, if the Fed continues to ease, even if they're just expanding the balance sheet, 
That, to me, means that gold can go higher. GDX will outperform the underlying gold. Yeah, yeah, I would just add one point to that trade. So there's obviously demand for the gold miners, for GLD, the ETF that tracks it. That all started when Guy was just talking about that, that kind of Fed move or actually the lack of confidence in July, the GLD took off. I would also mention that just of late, the options prices in the GLD have just spiked off of 52-week lows. It's just telling you there's demand for GLD. People want exposure to the upside there. And you think that's going to continue in? I don't have a opinion. I'm more in the Chevron camp that I don't care about gold. I'd rather look at companies. But. Gold. That's not an investment. Yeah. Well, okay then. Mm. For more, thanks, Mike Co. For more options action, check out our live show this Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Up next, we're going to do final trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. You just saw the shot of the crowd. I don't know. Are they really already starting to build out no, there for tomorrow no, night? Oh, no. They'll be happier tomorrow, though. It's going to be nice, almost 50 degrees. Oh. Is that right? Yeah. Decent we do weather. I know you're not with us tomorrow. I'll be here in spirit. No, you won't. Stop. Stop. <laughs> stop. Stop. By the way, that was the great Miley Cyrus, as you know, party in your. Naturally. Thing. The rest of the show, just Miley Cyrus. She watches the show, by the way. She's a huge Fast Money fan. Did you know that? Is she a Guy Dami fan? Um, that I can't answer. I, she's, I, know she's, I know for a fact she's a Fast Money fan. Mm, okay. So hi, Miley. Go with that. Her dad's great. Let's recap the day on Wall Street, if we might. Uh, stocks uh, putting in their worst day in four weeks today. Despite today's losses, S&P 500 is still on pace for its best December since 2010. We're trying to get the, uh, the best year since 97, but now we have a little more work to do tomorrow if we're going to get there. We were three-tenths of a percent away entering today, and now we're a little bit further. All right, let's do final trades. So a stock that I've been waiting for to break out has been Microsoft. I've owned it for a while now. It has broken out. I know we're in lofty territory here, but I'm staying with it. I think that Jedi contract is just the tip of the iceberg. Stay invested in Microsoft. Steve? Yeah, uh, 2019 stimulus becomes 2020 reacceleration. Want to buy the Russell 1000 value ETF, IWD. Okay, Danny Boy? Yeah, I like Mayo on Goldman playing for that analyst day in late January. You like Mayo on a hamburger? I like <laughs> his look. Guy Adami. I don't like Mayo ever except Mike Mayo Blackstone <laughs> breaking out. All right, good stuff. Thanks for watching. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.